Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Crypto Hipsters Podcast, where I interview founders and co-founders, entrepreneurs and artists, executives and stay-at-home hipsters in crypto and blockchain around the world. And I have an amazing podcast for you today. Let's get to it. And today I have an amazing guest coming from Shanghai. Um, and this is going to be a treat. Um, so without further ado, I bring you the head of strategy at Bifrost Finance, Thibaut Period. Thibaut, welcome. Thank you, Lord. Thanks a lot, Jamil. Appreciate the, the time. Thanks for the, the warm introduction. And it's nice to be here. Cheers. Cheers. Awesome. Great to have you. Um, so let's kick things off with the first question is this is what is your background and is it a logical background for what you're doing now yeah definitely um in terms of my background i don't know how far back you want to go but um obviously so i'm swiss just to give you a bit of background on myself uh from geneva uh grew up in in the uk in london did my masters and, and bachelors in london and uh and worked in traditional finance actually for about six seven years out of switzerland geneva where I was trading financial uh, markets, specifically foreign currency, so FX, for uh, a small boutique uh, currency hedging firm. I did that for about six, seven years as a you know, portfolio manager, business development, a bit of strategy as well for the company. And around uh, 2019, I actually took a pretty big uh, decision in my career and decided to take a, take a stop, take a little pause, and, and move to China. Uh, so I moved to China just before the pandemic, actually, to learn uh, Mandarin full time as a sort of an interest and for a challenge as well. And uh, yeah, I've been sort of stuck in, in China for, for two years, uh, learning my Mandarin full time. Uh, crypto obviously has always been an interest for me back since 2016, 2017, as a, you know, I would say as a, as a retail sort of you know, investor in terms of sort of diversifying my my portfolio and looking at other interesting opportunities as well as the innovation and the different sort of philosophy behind you know, Bitcoin and then Ethereum and what was happening at that, at that time. And, um, and yeah, when I, when I sort of took a step back from sort of learning Mandarin full time and having to realize that it was time to get back into the job market, I looked at obviously opportunities in tra traditional finance out of, out of China, you know, considering that the likes of BlackRock, Goldman Sachs, uh, JP Morgan were really pushing out to open up their wealth management units in Shanghai. And having been rejected on, on a few sort of different instances, um, I sort of took a step back and I said, you know, what do I firmly believe in? What is fundamentally my interest? And what do I see in the future as being something that could be, you know, quite life changing? And, and you know, what, where is the next sort of next sort of big catalyst in society, in the economic model? Where is that going to take place? And I took a step back and, and I looked at where DeFi was, you know, having sort of taken a foot out of it. And I was just sort of amazed by what was going on. So, so yeah, I would say the, the transition has been quite logical, actually, from traditional finance to, to decentralized finance, as, as we'd call it. And, um, and yeah, I just happened to, to speak to, to certain people in the industry. And they were kind enough to put me in, in contact, which is quite nice with the industry. People are quite open and engaging. And, uh, and I found the next gig, which was um, at Bifrost Finance. Uh, so we're between, you know, Shanghai and Singapore. And, uh, and I had the strategy now. So what do I do? I mean, I do a bit of 
obviously do a lot of business development strategy. I work between the head of product, the chief technology officer and the founder in terms of sort of designing the roadmap and seeing, you know, how we can go out there in terms of, you know, speaking different players, whether it's the VCs, the different protocols, the money markets, and as well as speaking on, on the community side, you know, how do we build a community? How do we build something with utility? So that's sort of a bit of a, a background in a nutshell of, of my past and where I am today. Very interesting. Um, I'm going to follow up on the first question, but how a follow up is how, how easy or difficult was it to learn Mandarin? Yeah, it's pretty difficult. I'm not going to lie. I mean, I started off at, at the lowest of levels uh, for about three, four months, and then obviously COVID hit, which meant that, you know, I was out of Beijing. So obviously um, things were quite strict, complete lockdown. So my transition of the learning went to online, which is obviously not the best environment to learn a language, but I sort of focused on learning the characters, which is a lot of memory game and practice, and then listening. So, I mean, Mandarin is, is okay. I mean, uh, the day-to-day -day job is in Mandarin. The team is 100% uh, between China and Singapore. So it's pretty much Mandarin. Uh, luckily, I've got a few uh, colleagues who speak good English, so I get away. But uh, daily meetings are in, are in Mandarin. I wouldn't say I'm fluent. I wouldn't be arrogant to tell you that, but uh, it's, it's a goal. It's obviously a goal. I'm doing okay. Put it that way. I can survive. Awesome. Awesome. Um, so let me ask you about what is it all about? Cool. So Bifrost is, um, I'm not going to, I can go into the details, but I can give a bit of context as well. Um, Bifrost is a substrate developed sort of Web3, if you like, uh, staking liquidity uh, derivative protocol where we're looking to provide cross-chain liquidity for, for staked assets. Um, it's a Kusama parachain. So I, I don't know if the audience is obviously familiar with Kusama, Polkadot, but Kusama and Polkadot are, are next generation blockchains, uh, layer zeros, if you want to call them, layer zero protocols that unite multiple specialized blockchains into sort of a unified architecture, which, you know, where you can leverage security, scalability, and interoperability. Um, so, so we are basically in Kusama, and we're currently bidding for, a, for a, an auction on Polkadot next. Okay, and what do you do with the, with the derivatives? What have, what have been the use cases or applications of it? Definitely. So in terms of, of what we had previously done, we had done something called, um, which was our sort of our first thing, it was the, the slot auction liquidity protocol. Um, what, what that does essentially, it, is, it offers the opportunity for, for users, participants um, to contribute in, in different projects is uh, CrowdLearn. Because the CrowdLearn structure is, is one which is prominent within the Kusama and, and Polkadot um, ecosystem. That's how projects are able to, to get a slot on the on the Polkadot uh, or Kusama um, chain in terms of parachain. So what that means is you're you're not you know you're not you're a participant who's looking to help and back a project, and you have to either put up Kusama or, or Polkadot tokens to um, to help secure that slot for the project. But there's a lockup period involved. It's roughly about 96 weeks. So what we ended up doing on our ends is we we sort of wanted to solve that opportunity cost associated with staking that. So we, we went about and, and created the first sort of slot auction liquidity protocol, which means that a contributor can basically contribute a dot or Kusama, and in return, he receives a derivative of that uh, dot or Kusama, which he can then use in different sort of DeFi or you know, DeFi uh, scenarios, such as trading it back to, to dot, 
or you know essentially going to getting more yield or or essentially as well a borrowing to as a collateral for another asset so that's sort of what we ended up doing at the very beginning and now that the different parachains have taken place on Polkadot and Kusama we've now recently launched our um, our staking liquidity protocol whereby whereby we're looking to provide standardized um, cross-chain staking liquidity derivatives for Polkadot relay chains parachains and other you know heterogeneous chains bridged with Polkadot so what does that mean is, you know, an easier way to understand is um, we see Bifrost as sort of a, as a derivative issuer that provides liquidity for, for pledged staked assets. So we issue sort of a corresponding shadow asset, which represents that asset uh, during that bonding period of the original assets, you know, time frame. And at the same time, that sort of shadow asset is a fungible token and it can be circulated in different uh, DeFi scenarios. So on, it can be traded on decentralized exchanges on different uh, protocols, and then it can go cross-chain to different ecosystems. I have a follow-up there, but I want to ask the first. I want to ask the next question first before I ask the follow-up. So, there's a right now. There's a conflict, right, between staking and the apps, right? Um, and how do you solve that conflict? What is the conflict, and how do you solve it? Sure, definitely. Yeah. So I think. In terms of, I mean, in terms of staking, as we know, the proof of stake model, you know, allows owners of a of a, of a cryptocurrency to stake coins and create um, their own validator nodes, right? And um, mm -hmm. in staking, you're basically pledging your coin to be used to verify transactions, and, and you earn rewards for that. And what does that mean? As well, you lose on liquidity. There's liquidity and there's an opportunity cost. So what we're trying to solve there, in terms of that conflict between staking and DApps, is we're providing the, the user to be able to stake, but at the same time, solving for that liquidity and opportunity cost involved in staking and issuing that derivative, which allows them to then keep receiving rewards from the staking, but also being able to continue in, in participating in different interesting DeFi scenarios for additional rewards. So that's sort of what we were looking to, to achieve. Now the follow-up. Um, sure. you, you said you have an FX background. Right. Um, and when I was at AIG, you know, when we when I looked at the derivatives, we were looking at, you know, um, like reverse repos and repos and, and sec lending and stuff like that. And we would we would measure that in terms of in terms of notional, right? Right now, there's you know there's tremendous value in the crypto uh, market. Everything's valued at total value locked or, or market. Um, you know, no one's looking at notional. So what is the notional? How do you how do you get there? How do you measure it? Um, you know, from a from a foreign exchange background, how do you how do you capture the notional value of your derivatives? Sure. Well, very simply said, I think I think the difference, I mean, we've termed it as a derivative in terms of what we're doing, um, because it's sort of a replication of, of that asset. So in terms of notional, we're looking at the actual asset. You know, the, the asset backed is is obviously the notional. Um, but then obviously, um, I, I, I assume that the crypto derivatives, you know, which we're seeing now, and, and it's a huge space, it's probably something we'll, we'll, we'll end up talking about later on. But that that also is, is in the, it ends up being very similar to how it's captured in traditional finance, actually. Okay, good. Good to know. I thought it would. <laughs> so uh, thank yeah. you for... Yeah. Um, so let me ask the next question is this, what is SALP and how does it help with issuing liquid asset derivatives? 
Sure, yeah. So, I mean, this is this follows up from from what I was explaining earlier, just in, in terms of giving you a bit of an idea of of how we're different and what we do. But yeah, the the SALP is is the slot auction uh, liquidity protocol. So, the slot auction, in other words, is is the crowd learn uh, mechanism behind the Kusama and um, and Polkadot um, ecosystem and the way it's been sort of you know thoughtfully sort of architectured in terms of how projects can bid in slot auction like type you know competitions in order to have a, a part of that um project to be built on top of either polkadot or kusama kusama is the canary network the testing battlefield or grounds of the polkadot um so what the salp offers is is basically the opportunity to participate in the crowd loans so whether it's you know polkadot or kusama where you're helping a project in getting a slot on on both on both networks uh, without having that lockup cost because as I said earlier, typically the crowd learns how it works is you're basically either putting your Kusama or your Polkadot, depending on which project you're, you're bidding for, and you're, you're, you're essentially staking um, your, your, your asset, the Kusama or the Polkadot, for 96 weeks. So the SALP, what it, what it ends up doing is we, we, we typically partner with those projects which are going for a crowd learn, and we're integrating them, allowing their contributors, you know, their they're users from their community. So that can be a retail investor. It can be a, a sophisticated investor. It can be an investor, a crypto VC. Anybody actually looking to back up that project. Um, we're solving that sort of opportunity cost associated with the staking mechanism in, in the crowd load. So it gives the users an opportunity to sort of max, maximize their capital utilization during that 96-week uh, crowd load lockup period. So it's a good way of, you know, of, of managing sort of their risk appetite. You know, they're able to contribute to a crowd loan for one of the projects they believe in they receive the um the state you know the the slot auction liquidity derivative so whether it's uh, vs dot or vs kusama that's our salp derivatives and uh, and they receive also a vs bond which is sort of the voucher to, to the voucher certificate of bond to, to testify that they've you know they've used the salp and they can then go out on on different uh, on different sort of DeFi scenarios, depending on where we have obviously um, you know created those utilities, enable to you know add more yield and add more opportunities to uh, to that lockup period. So we're, yeah, we're, we're trying to in different ways solve that that liquidity uh, crisis. You know, you see in in staking, but also in the slot auction crowd loan um, mechanism in Polkadot and Kusama. Interesting. I'm especially interested in the fact that it's a nine to six week lockup. So let's, you know, um, because a lot of people this past week, when they saw the, mar the market going down, they took their money out. And guess what? The market's been the market's been tanking and this fear that there's a bear market now. Right. So I guess how how have you seen the sentiment or how have you seen the benefit of having that lockup period during a time where the where it looks like we might be going to winter 2.0 yeah that's yeah it's a, it's a good one actually you know it's um i mean the lockup is you know as for staking i mean you're locking up your token so you know essentially you're you're safe per se but you know staking doesn't sort of protect you from the price fluctuations of your asset which you are staking so you are essentially you know essentially being sort of affected by those, you know, the market turbulence, the volatility we're seeing and the price, you know, fluctuations. However, the big difference, you know, if we are to speak about what's happening in the last 24 hours with uh, with Terra Luna and the, the UST peg, for example, 
we've seen a lot of liquidations. Why? Because people are actually they're borrowing assets on top of assets, and um, and they're basically you know they're they're basically leveraging. They're using collateral of assets, which are, are I mean are, can be used as collateral, obviously, but are being affected by what's happening um, specifically in this scenario. So people are being liquidated on that front. Um, so I think obviously it depends on on your use cases, you know, how you're basically going about and your you know your risk management and your your risk appetite. But um, I would say on our front, um, you know, from the staking perspective, of course, you know, price fluctuations, you know, unfortunately they they affect your your lockup regardless. But um, you're obviously I would say prevented from from all the other bigger uh, issues we've seen recently with with liquidations and being you know being completely wiped out uh, with with certain events which are have not been sort of you know, predicted really. So I know I know to, we'll talk about Terra Luna briefly. I I know it lost its pay, and I saw the price like sixty something cents. Do you know what? I don't know really what happened. Uh, do you know what happened there? Well, I'm, I've been following it obviously because you know we, we've seen what's happened. Um, you know, with obviously the Bitcoin price going down, and then following what people are saying on Twitter because obviously Twitter is obviously a, a great medium for, for crypto and, and people coming out and speaking. There's a lot of speculation around there that some are saying that it could be sort of tra traditional finance players out there. Uh, I, I don't name names, but some pretty big players out of Chicago, for example, uh, looking to test actually uh, this idea of stable coins you know algorithmic stable coins um, and seeing if they can be sort of you know depegged and destabilized um, and that's sort of what we saw actually um, and obviously the big problem we've seen there and obviously the that the founder of FTX came out as well today to, to, to mention what he had previously spoken about when he was asked about this is if your collateral is something like Bitcoin, you know, of course, the risks there are huge. So the, this depegging of what we've seen is is a bad thing because a lot of people have obviously gotten hit, you know, liquidated. But it's also a good thing for the long term longevity, I think, of the field because you know this idea of algorithmic stablecoins is is pretty new, actually. Um, you know, we've seen this currently this decentralized notion of stablecoin trying to sort of get away from traditional finance, you know, centralized governance and all that. But um, it's being tested for perhaps the wrong reasons. But we're seeing a community effect now from Terra Luna's side, uh, and you know, market makers who have looked to obviously help, uh, you know, stabilize the peg and bring it back up. So there's been also a centralized, you know, coordination amongst Terra and, it, and its different um, counterparties to help uh, with the peg. But um, but this has been a pretty good test in terms of the you know the future of of what can be seen and and how we can sort of be protected in in the near term. So I think. In terms of the details, um, I'm obviously not too familiar, but obviously we've just seen a depegging. It's been a forced depegging of, I think some are saying it's a coordinated attack of seeing how 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 strong was the peg, and obviously seeing as uh, USDT and you know Terra Luna, there's that mechanism of, of burning one over the other to keep the peg, and obviously the collateral being other cryptocurrencies. Well, uh, yeah, when your collateral assets are essentially volatile. Um, yeah, what we saw is 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 not really of, of a surprise, I would say. I remember I had a holdings in Ample Fourth Net lost its peg, and I made money on that. So um, this one, obviously, people are losing a lot. Um, you are in Shanghai, and your team is in China and Singapore, and Singapore is one of the biggest areas for tether, right? 
what if tether were to lose its peg then what happens to your decentralized finance so I think when I when I had actually read about um, what was going on in the past twenty four hours, a lot of people were referring to, to Tether. So this actually happened to Tether a few years back, I and mean, a lot of people were making the analogy of how Tether got back and how USDT would essentially you know come come back as well. Um, but I think you know whether it's Tether or USDT, because obviously we've seen you know the rise of Terra. We've obviously seen how Doquan, obviously that the founder of Terra, has been quite vocal and and quite sort of. I, <laughs> aggressive on social media in terms of his vision of stable coins and, and there's a there's a pretty big community there as well you know when you look at the price action we're going you know last year we're talking about or even this year we're talking we're talking about a high of 115 120 and, and last year you know we'd started around three dollars so there's been a huge 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 growth on that side and the ecosystems in terms of what's being built so i i mean obviously i do think currently there's a very sour taste to you know the reliance of these sort of stable coins and how they're being sort of the system behind it um but as i said earlier i think it's a good test it's obviously short term it hurts everybody from you know the retail which obviously some were perhaps too exposed and too risk-seeking um to obviously the builders behind as well you know some food for thought there in terms of going back and seeing around that sort of algo you know algorithmic stablecoin and the mechanism behind it and, and collateral and and how going forward a coordinated you know movement can be sort of avoided or at least you know the effects can be sort of muted so i think yeah. in terms of DeFi, i think it's more of a we're seeing more of a price price effect and it's obviously wiping out everybody and, and the sentiment is pretty sour but when i you know when i speak about what we're doing uh, at bifrost and, and obviously we're building on kusama and polkadot it's a very, very um, tech tech building sort of community, very technical as well, which has had perhaps less media exposure to the likes of Cosmos, to the likes of of, of Terra Luna, for example. So the community is there and, and it's very technical and we're very much focused on, on what the technology behind and the, the innovation we're looking to provide there. So it's quite funny because on our ends in Polkadot Kusama, we're not really looking at price too much, obviously not happy about it you know vnc our, our native asset is obviously you know fluctuating quite dramatically but um in terms of what was being built and the community and the, the atmosphere around that and the solidarity i think that's quite uh, reassuring for, for sort of the long prospects of DeFi going forward yeah i'm a fan of polka dot i don't have any holdings right now but i'm a fan of what you guys have done i've had a few conversations with polka dot um ecosystem and uh, very impressive so um and and you are building, which is great. And um, as you continue to build, you know, and you have this experience, you transitioned from traditional finance to decentralized finance, right? Um, what are the things that still need to happen to get traditional finance players into the decentralized finance space? And how do we get them there? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um... Well, I, in traditional finance, I was basically on on the side of my, my clients were were public private pension funds. So we're talking about institutional clients, which are managing you know assets under management, which are pretty huge, uh, and the people you know the assets are coming from obviously the pensions. So I mean, there's a bit of a delicate sort of governance around there, and there's a bit of a mandate where perhaps DeFi would be slightly maybe you know too risk seeking on that front and too dangerous or especially if we we look at it today 
But maybe in, in the future, I mean, we could see, I mean, obviously in terms of sophisticated uh, investors, we're obviously seeing them already in the space in terms of traditional finance. Um, you know, whether it's the big, the big banks I'd referred to earlier that I was looking to work for, you know, these guys have a foot in there because they know that they're going to have to change their business model uh, from, from a client's perspective because there's a generational change as well, right? And on the second side, there's also a, a huge opportunity uh, in terms of, you know, alpha which they obviously have to go for. So, I mean, it can be both ways. It can be in terms of opening up, you know, products in a certain way to their clients, but obviously these products have to, you know, have to be ensured to be, you know, ticking every box um, for regulators. But then that's where the, I would say the, um, there's a bit of a, a bit of a contrast there, or a bit of an antithesis, I would say, because we're looking at decentralized finance but then again, you need the centralized finance sort of regulatory approval, and and these you know these institutional investors are fundamentally you know serving traditional finance, and they're under that sort of structure. So I, I think on a product perspective, there might be aspects of it which which obviously can be um, you know exposed to, to to the investor, to the retail investor in in some sort of way. Perhaps you know staking, for example. Could could essentially be you know something very very simple to be provided to to traditional finance. I mean we're already saying TradeFi, you know they're doing a lot of that. Um, but in terms of more complex things that we're seeing, you know in terms of you know farming or we even we're even seeing decentralized uh, option vaults as well, which is quite interesting. You know how traditional structured products are going into DeFi now. Um, so I'd say there's a lot of innovation in terms of the, on the product side coming from traditional finance and being tested uh, with a bit more of a tech tech flair in DeFi. But on the end, the end user, for, for it to be a traditional finance sort of type player to come in and, and use that is going to take a bit of work uh, from a regulatory standpoint and obviously risk appetite as well. Um, so that's going to have to be seen in the near future. But what's actually quite interesting, though, to, to come to your point is the, the big banks are, are getting some sort of exposure here uh, on the product side. Uh, the ETFs we're seeing, obviously, to, to show some sort of exposure to their, to the, to their clients. But also what we're seeing as well is you know, the crypto derivative market is, is actually you know, growing year after year. And, um, and we're seeing quite interesting, a lot of, a lot of the, um, the retail clients are obviously asking for leverage products uh, for some sort of visibility there. And, um, and there's a bit of a synergy taking place whereby centralized venues, so decentralized exchanges are having to go out there and buy um, centralized um, regulated establishments in order to have exposure to retail clients who have that demand. So it's going both ways. There's the interest from TradeFi to DeFi in terms of ideas and alpha capture, but there's also DeFi looking to get into TradeFi, you know, in order to have the volume and the clients. But um, I think regulation is obviously a big problem, and that's going to obviously that's obviously a bit of a, a problem there because. The whole idea of decentralized finance is is to sort of get away from from that. So I, I don't know. I mean, I think um, we're going to have to see what takes place yeah. there. Yeah, I, I, something just popped in my head while you said that, and um, I don't know how feasible it is um, it going to be, but a lot of a lot of retail, you know, customers they still buy term life, whole life. Um, fixed and variable annuities from financial planning companies like you know mutual insurance company and there are, there's a big volume of that 
right? Um, it wouldn't be possible to get the derivative products or the, you know, uh, DeFi products embedded into these traditional products that people are already familiar with. Um, give them a little bit more yield, and then have the DeFi rolled out through the traditional products. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it was on both sides. I think today, um, if you look at how accessible it is as well i mean all you need to simply do is you need to have an have an account on an exchange a centralized exchange you know make sure you understand the basics around you know sending sending your holdings from let's say binance as a, as a centralized exchange example to you know a wallet it could be metamask for example or polka.js or, or any type of wallet out there and then from there i mean you've got the whole DeFi world you know at your feet so there is a bit of education which is needed, but as soon as the retail investor understands the simplicity of it, I think um, it won't need necessarily that that real push from TradeFi, you know, from from the likes of these old players um, coming in and, and selling financial products for you and, and stuff like that. I mean, I I can speak for myself, you know, I, I have a bank account with a UBS, you know, bank, Swiss bank, I'm sure you're familiar, and. Um, you know, I've had that account because my you know, my parents put money there. Great, but when I look at the fees I'm paying, I look at the speed of transactions, which are incredibly slow, from one account to another account in the same bank. You know, these these transactions can take one or two days in terms of compliance. Fees on the FX, you're not getting market price. You know, you're getting hundred basis points. You know, over market price. You're then getting fees on top of fees because you've decided to buy shares through them or a product through them. There's hidden fees. So there's there's all of that as well, uh, which I think more and more we're starting to to take, I mean, to take it, you know, have attention to it. We're starting to notice, you know, notice that this is for what? For what reason? You know, this should be free. You know, we should be able to do this for free. Um, so I think there's also that realization taking place specifically with the new generation, uh, perhaps my generation as well um where we are not happy with that and i think there's going to be maybe that that shift that's already taken place um but i do think that if you know those big banks um can become you know quite you know, a bit more sophisticated maybe you know work more on the fintech side see how they can you know democratize sort of finance financial products being a bit bring a bit of flair as well the trade fire you know we're seeing a lot of trade fire as well taking place now exchanges which are providing wealth management products as well they're getting regulatory approval in switzerland for example with the finma so there is you know some actors out there which are quite young you know five to eight years old you know in terms of company life life lifeline and and they're, they're already trying to do that but they you know their founders are quite young as well so um hopefully we'll see more players like that come in and then the old players the traditional players will come in and go okay well either we have to buy you know these players in order to have market share and to be sort of still you know relevant or we have to change our business model um and i think that's that should take place i hope i hope soon um i mean as a, as a very simple example the likes of revolut and all these different sort of digital banks that are i've hope you know have started in the last seven eight years i mean these have been great you know and that sort of shifted as well uh people's spending habits and, and, and their way of having access to financial products via these via these new new companies so i hope that on the DeFi space we can see that take place i hope so too <laughs> that'd be great um so 
this has been, um, I want to thank you uh, very much. I want to thank you very much for an amazing conversation today. Uh, this has been excellent. Um, so I do have one final question and it's this, um, how can people find out more information about you, about uh, Bifrost, about what you guys do? Um, how can they do it? Uh, well, in terms of in terms of getting in contact with me, I think you know there's there's Twitter, where I, I'm obviously there. Um, there's LinkedIn as well, perhaps more the professional route. Bifrost Finance. Um, we have a Twitter page, where obviously that's probably the best place to, to to get you know get to know us. There's obviously our website as well to get to know our DAP and and what we do. And we then have our Discord community and our Telegram community, where you know we're more than happy to ask question you know to answer questions that users might have or any sort of you know proposal they might have so yeah you know feel free to, to reach out and uh, we'll happily sort of get back and and hopefully answer your questions and and there we go awesome thank you very much for your time today thanks Dr. Mill. appreciate it